0: Thank you guys. Uh, It's good to be here with you this morning. I do want to just highlight one announcement for next week, and that is that um, next week is the church's 75th birthday. And so we are going to go into that one combined service for the summer, but we're also going to have a state of the church talk about. Um, what we've been through in the last year and where we're headed uh, in the future. And so I just wanna make sure that you're here next week. Um, There's gonna be a little bit of a celebration afterwards as much as we can in the time that we find ourselves in. And so just make sure that uh, if you can to be here next week, invite somebody from the church. It's gonna be a big Sunday for the church and 75th birthdays are always big. So we wanna make it a, a special time. So just wanted to make sure you got all the information on that. Uh, let me pray and then we'll dive into the sermon this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be here um, on this Memorial Day, Lord. We thank you for those who sacrificed on our behalf so that we could be here, Lord. And um, we just pray that your spirit would uh, be in the service, Lord. I pray that you would meet everyone who is here to uh, minister to them in their place of need. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts um, to your word, make a deposit in your, of your spirit in us so that we can do your work in the world. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in John chapter four today. And as Dave mentioned, this is our last in our series called Streams of Living Water from Richard Foster's book, and I thought for our last uh, text here that we would see if we can find a place where all of the streams run together. So that will be our project for this morning is to see how in this one story that I'm going to read to you that all of the streams of living water are flowing. So. Hear these words from John chapter four. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The women said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he." So like I said, our project this morning is to assess the streams of living water that are flowing through this famous text. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. It's a beautiful and powerful gospel story. And to think about contemplation within this context, which is our first dream, this stream of prayer and thoughtful meditation is the hardest, I think, to find within the text because this is really a high action text. This is Jesus in ministry mode as he's at the well. So one of the ways I want to get at contemplation is to look at the way that John has shaped uh, his gospel narrative through this section of the gospels. And this deep contemplation that is thematically rising up through the Gospel of John as we think about water in a completely different way. At the first seven chapters of the Gospel of John, there is a mention of water. Uh, In the first chapter, we discover John the Baptist and he is talking about how he baptizes with water, but there will be one who comes to baptize in the Spirit. And then we move to Jesus' first miracle in chapter two of John, where Jesus does that famous miracle of turning water into wine. And so we start to think deeper about what is the meaning of water beyond just quenching a temporary thirst. Well, in chapter three, then, there's this famous conversation that Jesus has with a religious leader uh, of the Jews named Nicodemus. And you may remember in that story, he says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom unless they are born of water. Then in chapter four, we just see here now, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman, the polar opposite of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this religious leader, this great teacher of the Jews, now a Samaritan woman at a well, somebody who would have been a total outcast. And he explains to her that this well, this well that she has encountered, not Jacob's well, but in him, is a stream of eternal water, that she can drink from and then even moves on to chapter five, we move to the pool at Bethsaida where there's a man at the pool and he knows that if only he could get to the middle of the pool and that Jesus would stir up the waters that he would be healed but Jesus says you don't need to do any of that. Just get up and be healed. So no longer do you need this pool, you have me. I am here in your midst. And then in chapter seven we get this famous phrase that is actually a quote from Isaiah 55 and actually began our time in uh, this text where it's the festival of the tabernacle and there's all this conversation about water and that in this really dramatic moment Jesus says this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink and the quote from Isaiah 55 is come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, listen, that you may live. Do you hear this great host of heaven saying, come? I can remember a time when this group went down to, uh, to uh, Tijuana, Mexico, in order to build a couple of houses. And whenever you have two house builds, there's a certain question about you know, who gets the best house and the best conditions for building the house. And I remember this particular year, we went down in August and it was extremely hot. And one group got the house that was shaded in a nice neighborhood, and the other group got a house that was up on a hill on a dirt road, and it was in the middle of the hot sun. And I was praying I would get that nice conditioned house, but no, we were doing hard labor, my group, um, on uh, this hill in this hot summer heat. And not only that, but we actually made a mistake as we were building. We had to undo it and redo it again. It was totally discouraging, and we were so hot. And we were thirsty. I mean, have you ever been truly thirsty before? Have you ever worked so hard that you just desperately needed water? I think this is what John is inviting us to contemplate in the story in a spiritual sense. Are you thirsty Who are the ones who are truly thirsty for the water that only Jesus can provide? So let's examine a person who is an example of a person who has this type of thirst. And it is good for us to contrast this Samaritan woman with Nicodemus, who we just met in chapter 3 right before, and ask the question, who gets it and who doesn't get it? when it comes to Jesus' presentation of the gospel and the streams of living water. So let's talk about holiness after we move out of contemplation. Now, it is not hard to discover in this story how Jesus is speaking about holiness to the Samaritan woman. In fact, it startles us even now as we read the text, right? there is a way in which we see a dramatic tension almost immediately in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Why? Because he calls out the source of her shame. Now, one of the notes that we could put in the context of this story as Jesus speaks to this woman that I don't know if the church has always put in is this idea that women, we discover in Deuteronomy, cannot file for divorce. So even though she's had five husbands, there's a way in which that has always been done to her. And now we always, even in our modern times, if we meet somebody who's been through five divorces, may later in the car be saying some negative things about them, right, in judgment. But we can see within the story that Jesus has a completely different approach to this woman. And so he begins this exchange. In fact, it is the longest conversation in any gospel with any one figure, this Samaritan woman. And I believe that if any one of us in this room would have this conversation with Jesus, it would be a tough conversation because shame is a powerful emotion. Shame could send a rocket to the moon, right? Like shame is something at the very beginning that Adam and Eve experience and it sends them running into hiding. And so when Jesus calls out the very core wound of this woman, we also are surprised and shocked and wonder how could he possibly get away with this? How could he possibly say this? But I believe it is, his fierce attention to this woman that allows him to be in such a dialogue with her. You know, parental attachment is so important. You know, those first five years with a child and making eye contact. But in this story, I wonder if just a few moments with Jesus making eye contact has all the power of a new attachment in a new way. Jesus' attention on this woman is a healing attention and he believes that she can transform so she can be made new. He believes for her because she has this way in which her well has been poisoned by shame. She's come at noon to the well. Many scholars think that that's because she really doesn't want to interact with any other person in her own town because that's the heat of the day so people would come in the morning or the afternoons but in the middle of the day is a sign to us that she didn't just have a problem with jesus being a jew she also had a problem with her own samaritan village that she lived with and so jesus is going after all of it he's going straight to the heart of the matter and he invites her to drink still. He invites her to receive a living water that will never run dry. And in our shame, in our wound, which we all carry, may look different depending on our histories and context. I wonder if it strikes us as good news that Jesus knows everything about us. Everything about us and yet still offers us his living water and invites us into his holiness. In fact, this woman later in the story, we find out as she goes out to tell her village about what happened to her, she says, come and see the one who knows everything about me. And scholar Barbara Brown adds that the dot, dot, dot of that is and loves me anyways he knows everything about me and loves me anyways this is what God's mercy that produces his holiness looks like interesting that John uh, in John chapter 3 Nicodemus has a long conversation where we get John 316 the most popular evangelical verse but if you remember in the story he walks away totally confused, right? But this woman, this woman, the Samaritan woman with no pride, has been called out, but she's still engaging, a little bit uncomfortable, so she actually changes the subject, because she's so curious, how could Jesus wanna talk to me of all people, and he's a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, There's this long-standing conflict between our people. Not only that, I'm a woman. All of this is totally inappropriate for him to do. She's at the bottom of society, and yet she's open, open to this conversation, and we might say, okay, well, how does Jesus know all of this stuff about her? Isn't it a good question to ask, how does Jesus know? And theologians wrestle with this, right? How much of Jesus' omnipotence did he surrender when he became human? But I want us to think more of Jesus in his humanness operating out of his connection to the spirit in this conversation. Because what that does is doesn't make Jesus something we can't attain but instead invites us to think really critically about what it means that Jesus can have these types of conversations and move in this type of power of the spirit, which is our next dream. That Jesus was so connected to the spirit that he knew exactly what to say to this woman. He knew what was going on in her life and he knew what she needed. And he breaks straight through all of that political conversation to say in the end, what I'm looking for are those who would worship in what? Spirit and truth. So we see the spirit of God just flowing as Jesus is having this evangelical conversation. The spirit is speaking through him to this woman, to the very core essence of who she is, right to what she wants most in the world. And like I said, as we move to the justice stream, we can see this is so surprising, right? That Jesus goes through Samaria, this place where the Pharisees refused to go and they would walk much further around Samaria, which was the direct route, just to avoid this group that they considered half-breed. In fact, the reason why the Samaritans were considered um, impure to the Jews was because at one point they were occupied by an Assyrian army. And the Assyrian king had brought in and, and sent people into exile into the area of Samaria, and so there was this intermixing of Assyrians and Jews, and this intermixing was viewed as impure, even though it wasn't something they chose, it was because they were occupied, they were still viewed as impure. And then this debate rose up out of this bitterness of these two groups. You know, should we worship on Mount Gerizim? which was local to Samaria and was a mountain that Moses also went up and they believed is where he received the Ten Commandments, or should we worship in the Jerusalem temple? And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, worship in spirit and in truth. One day a time will come. A woman, which was a no-no to Any good Pharisee would have judged Jesus for this conversation. Also, her race was a problem for the Jews. And also, probably because she was divorced five times, her ability to have any substantial sustainable income would have also been in question. And so, she was probably also very poor. And so we see all of the issues of justice that Jesus goes to the one who represented all of these things that to his culture would have said, why would you go there? Why would you be there? Why would you care for that one? But in the end, what Jesus sees is the Imago day in her, her potential, who she truly is as a daughter of the one who's most high one also created by God and she gets it. Where Nicodemus can't get it because of his job and status and pride, which we might pay attention to, those of us who have good jobs and good status and good pride, this woman, the Samaritan woman, was open and ready and looking for something else. She was truly thirsty for what Jesus had to offer. She represents those who we should be looking for. Anyone in any status or class who is truly thirsty, is truly looking for the real thing, who is interested in a conversation about streams of living water and what they can do in a person's life. And I want to read to you how she becomes an evangelist. Jesus is giving us the model here for evangelism, and then she goes out, and this is what she does. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now she didn't go out and do the complete conversation, conversion with everyone in her village, did she? No, she just said, come and see. Jesus is here. He changed everything for me and you need to come and see him. Come and see him. And then when they did, they discovered he was the real deal. And so all she did was become invitational. Because of this transformation in her heart, she just knew she had to share it with everyone in her village. And so the gospel spreads in the most unlikely of places. And this moves us to our final stream, the incarnational stream. And one of the notes that I wanna point out is this verse where we're talking about the true worshipers. In this verse, Jesus says, but the hour is coming. The hour is coming. This is a reference in John that comes up again and again in reference to when he will go, Jesus will go to the cross. So let's consider what it means to drink the living water out of how Jesus describes the cup that he will have to drink. You remember in Matthew 26, when he's in the upper room, he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Elsewhere in James and John, James and John ask Jesus if they could sit at his right hand and his left. And when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus replies, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? In John 18, as Jesus was being arrested, Peter drew his sword, but Jesus told him, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? In each of these instances, Jesus used the metaphor of drinking as a way of describing the suffering that he would endure on the cross. And then you remember in John chapter 19, his final words on the cross before he says it is finished is, I am thirsty. Jesus became thirsty. He became a human and become totally thirsty. He took on all of our human thirst on the cross so that springs of living water would flow out of him to us in its place. There's a beautiful story written by former secular humanist, Raymond Gilkey. Um, he graduated from Harvard in 1940. And Then he traveled to China in order to teach English at a university there. And then World War II broke out. This is when the Japanese invaded China as well, when he was living there. And so Gilkey was placed in an internment camp with other foreigners facing difficult and inhumane conditions. In fact, he was in this internment camp for a few years with many missionaries and many teachers and scholars. And one of the things that he comments on in his book Shantae Compound, which was the name of the internment camp that he was in, is that in those desperate situations, what he observed about the human condition actually made him stop being a secular humanist. Because he had this belief that human beings were good intrinsically. But when he was in the internment camp, he saw that the way that humans behaved when there was a lack of resources showed him that there is a human desperation that also can take over. He reconfigured how he thought about the human condition. He noted this in both the missionaries and the religious teachers of his time, that both of them uh, and the educational teachers, both, both treated each other terribly in these conditions. But he said there was one missionary who stood out And his name was Eric Little. And you may know him from the movie Chariots of Fire. But he actually died in Shontane compound. And many think that the most important contribution that he ever made was in this compound, where he decided, because of the grace of God, that he would become the de facto youth leader of this internment camp and he ran all the games. He never complained. And, and so Gilkey, commenting on Little, said that he was converted by this one man's encounter with grace that helped each person in that internment camp to survive. Unfortunately, he died just months before they were released. So the question for us is, have we encountered these streams of living water, and can they do for us what they did for Eric Little? My prayer is that as we come together, all of these streams begin to flow within the church, that we will see the power of God made manifest. I wanna close our time with a foreword um, at the very end, Uh, I mean, excuse me, an afterword at the very end of the streams of living water. um, This is Richard Foster's vision for these streams. He writes this. Everything I have shared with you in this book grows out of a deep conviction that a great new gathering of people of God is occurring in our day. The streams of faith that I've been describing, contemplative, holiness, charismatic, social justice, evangelical, incarnational, are flowing together into a mighty movement of the spirit. They constitute, as best I can understand it, the contours and shapes of this new gathering. Right now, we remain largely a scattered people. This has been the condition of the Church of Jesus Christ for many years but a new thing is coming. God is gathering his people once again, creating of them an all-inclusive community of loving persons with Jesus Christ at the community's prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. This community is breaking forth in multiplied ways and varied forms. I see it happening, this great new gathering of the people of God. I see an obedient, disciplined, freely gathered people who know in our day the life and powers of the kingdom of God. I see a people of cross and crown, of courageous action and sacrificial love. I see a people who are combining evangelism with social action, the transcendent lordship of Jesus Christ with the suffering servant Messiah. I see a people who are buoyed up by the vision of Christ's everlasting rule, not only imminent on the horizon, but already bursting forth forth in our midst. I see a people, a people, even though it feels as if I am peering through a a glass darkly. I see a country pastor from India embracing an urban priest from New Jersey and together praying for the peace of the world. I see a people... I see a Catholic monk from the hills of Kentucky standing alongside a Baptist evangelist from the streets of Los Angeles and together offering up a sacrifice of praise. I see a people. I see social activists from the urban centers of Hong Kong joining with Pentecostal preachers from the barrios of San Paulo, and together weeping over the spirituality lost and the plight of the poor. I see a people. I see laborers from Soweto and landowners from Priora honoring and serving each other out of a reverence for Christ. I see a people. I see Hutu and Tutsi, Serb and Croat, Mongol and Han Chinese, African American and Anglo, Latino and Native American, all sharing and caring and loving one another. I see a people. I see the sophisticated standing with the simple, the elite standing with the dispossessed, the wealthy standing with the poor, I see a people, I see a people, I tell you, a people from every race and nation and tongue and stratum of society, joining hearts and hands and minds and voices declaring, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see, let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that your streams of living water would flow, put us in touch with our thirst so that we might draw from you and draw unto you and know the true thing that can sustain us through all of the chaos and turbulence and difficulty of this life so that we might be a testimony like the Samaritan woman and Eric Little, for those around who need to know that there is a living water that they can also drink from. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus.